Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Because today we are starting a new book of the Bible. We are going to be in 1 Thessalonians. The way it's going to work is we start 1 Thessalonians today. We're going to take a break from it next week, and then they're going to return to it the week after that. And some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, what's, what's the deal? Why are we taking a break from 1 Thessalonians next week? It's my fault. It really is. I'll tell you the deal is I'm going to be out of town in California. I leave as soon as the service is over with. I get in a car and I have to end up in California by tonight. I'll be meeting with other evangelical free church pastors and I'll be getting back late Wednesday night. And just so you know, here at Crossroads, the bulletins have to be printed Friday morning. Does not leave much time to get a good sermon together, does it? So I thought to myself, I've been preaching for 30 years and I know what it's like. Many of you guys have forgotten by Monday what I said on Sunday. I know, it's okay, I can all admit it. And some of you are laughing, like, I know how this goes. But I thought maybe it would be good, I could pull out something I did in my archives over the last 30 years and to be able to preach it. And it's already done, and if it's old enough, probably many of you never heard of it. And if it's something you heard of, it's long enough that maybe you forgot it. So it would be worth recycling a little bit. So I went through my archives and started looking for cool stuff that I want to preach again. And, and I got down to two, and I just couldn't make a decision. So I'm going to ask you to help me make that decision, like right here, right now. You're like, well, how do I do that? You're going to take a survey. And we have a church texting number, and it's, uh, it's 712-900-0109. I want you to check, text the word Custom Sunday to that number. In fact, we're going to do it right now. So I'm a pastor literally telling you to take your phones out in church and text people. Now, how many times do you have that happen to you? The pastor tells you to text somebody during service. So take out your phones, text Custom Sunday to that number right now. It'll bring up the survey and you get to choose between the two. One message I preached in 2021, it's what does the Bible say about happiness? I really enjoyed that study. I gave it actually between Christmas and New Year's. It was one of those Sundays when 12 people came. <laughs> I probably should recycle this sometime. So if that's a great one. The other one is what does the Bible say about forgiveness? And I know for many people that's something they struggle with. I preached that message in 2014. So that's a decade old. So you guys get to decide right now. Go ahead and get your phones out and do it. Okay, maybe some of you will, maybe some of you won't. I'll give you about 30 seconds to fill the survey out, and then we're going to jump right into our, our text. A few of you are like, I'm really good at this phone thing, texting away. All right, time's up. If you want to continue to do that, great. Otherwise, I'm starting. Well, today, as I said, we're starting 1 Thessalonians, and you need to know this is a great church. This is a church that Paul really loved. It's a church that produced a lot of joy for Paul. Not all the churches in the Bible are that way. If you know, for instance, if you look at the church in Galatia, Paul writes the letter to Galatians to them, and he's freaking out on them like, you guys are leaving the gospel. You can't do that. They upset him. Or if you look at the beginning of the book of Revelation, the letters to the churches, Jesus writes, and he's, <coughs> Jesus isn't happy with all of them. Uh, the church of Ephesus, they left their first love. They left Jesus. The church of Laodicea, they were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And you really couldn't get those guys motivated one way or the other. But then there's this church of Thessalonica, the letter that we're going to study today. Paul has everything positive to say about this church. He loves this church. In fact, this letter is just all encouragement. So as we study it, I hope that you are encouraged as we study this book. Look at some of the snippets we pull out of this letter about why he loved this church so much. On the top of your outline, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, 
you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is in work in you believers. He loves this church because these guys love their Bible. And they viewed their Bible as the very word of God. They viewed Paul's words as God's words to them. That's great. Look what else he says a little bit later in chapter 2. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. I haven't been able to be with you guys, but that may be in person, but not in heart, because he says, I love you guys so much. I am so proud of you. So he has great affection for this church. And as I was studying this week, I sort of started to feel like Paul. And I'm thinking about way about Crossman's church. Like, as a church, we hold the Bible with high value, don't we? It is the written word of God. That's hard to find nowadays, isn't it? And I am so proud of us as a church to keep our finger in the text, when that's a rare thing today. The other thing is I can say as a pastor, having been here 15 years, is you guys are a wonderful church. And you bring incredible joy to my heart. And I am so privileged to pastor you. I'm so proud of you. When I'm going to go to California and talk with other pastors this week, I can't wait to brag on you, uh, quite honestly. So I'm super excited as well. This morning, as we're, even though we're starting this book of First Thessalonians, we're really not going to actually get into the book of First Thessalonians. We're going to just give some background to this book and this church. There's three things we're going to do. Number one, we're going to look at the background of the city. Number two, we're going to look at how the gospel came to this city. And number three, we're going to look at a little overview of the book. And by the time we get to the section where we look at the overview of the book, once you learn the background of the city and the background of how the gospel came to the city, all of a sudden the book of First Thessalonians will start to make a lot of sense very important stuff. So if you have your outlines, uh, take them out. We're going to begin with the first point, which is what is the history of the city, the city of Thessalonica? You can put the first map up if you could, please. Uh, the year is 315 BC when the city of Thessalonica was first founded. It was founded in a place called Therma. It's in the country that today we know as Greece. In that time, it was actually divided into two countries. In the north was the area or the country of Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica was located. In the south was a country called Achaia or Achaia. And the city's founder uh, for, was a, actually a general, a general for Alexander the Great. The man's name was Cassander. And he founded the city in this location for a couple reasons. One is it had some very interesting natural thermal springs. We call them sort of hot springs. That's why this town was originally called Therma, which means heat, where we get our English word thermometer from. That was something that attracted him to, attracted the city to him, or that location to him for the city. It was also located on the, one of the north, northern parts of the Aegean Sea. And third, it was located on a major route called the Via Ignatia. And we'll look at that more in a few minutes. So there's a lot of things this place had going for it, which is why he wanted to found the city there. You may wonder, why did he call this city Thessalonica? Well, he was married to the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And he decided to name this city after his wife. So she would live on in memoriam for in history. And that's why it has that name. Let's put up the next map. There's some key cities in this area. In the region of Macedonia in the north, uh, the key cities are Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And if you've read the, the book of Acts, you know that Paul actually goes through these cities, bringing the gospel there. In the south, in the uh, area of Achaia, or the country of Achaia, there's two key cities down there. Uh, 
Athens and Corinth. And you're probably familiar with the fact that Paul spent a bunch of time in Athens and he spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth. So he brings the gospel there. When the Romans uh, came into this area in 168 BC, they divided Macedonia up into four smaller parts and they made Thessalonica the capital city of one of those parts. After 20 years, they reunited those four parts back into one and made this city of Thessalonica the capital city of the whole country of Macedonia. So this is a city that's a capital city. It's a large city. It's a very important and powerful city. That background is important to know. Now let me tease out some more information about them. For your outlines, the first thing I want to point out to you is a strategic location. I have some friends who are realtors, and they tell me the key to real estate is location, location, and location. That's everything. And that's the key to this city. Its location is the key to its success. The first thing to know is it's located on the Via Ignatia. And you're like, what is the Via Ignatia? It is an ancient highway. And go ahead and put that map up there if you could of the Via Ignatia. It was built by the Romans in 200 BC. If you went 260 miles to the west, you ended up in a port that went directly to Rome. If you went 430 miles to the east, you ended up in the Orient. So this is a major superhighway uh, where you have commerce, and you have goods all being trafficked from Rome to the Orient back and forth. And it goes right through this city, which makes it nice to have, you know, you always put a, low, a restaurant, why? Next to a highway, because people are coming there. And you're probably wondering, well, this is a, a highway that the Romans built. How big is this highway? <laughs> Not that big. Not by our standards. Go ahead and put the picture of it up there. The Via Ignatia was a stone highway. It ranged between 6 and 10 feet wide, uh, depending on what part you were on. The next thing you need to know is that this city, uh, as we know, is located in one of the most northern parts of the Aegean Sea. It had a deep and natural harbor. One of the common problems for cities located on the coast in the Aegean Sea was something called silting, which is the currents bringing dirt into the harbor, filling up the harbor and sort of killing it. If you were with us when we studied the city of Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, you know that Ephesus was the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, but it eventually died because the harbor silted over. Today, if you go to look at the ancient city of Ephesus, it is located four miles inland. That's four miles of silt that have slowly went, gone into that harbor and built it further and further out. But the city of Thessalonica was different. It was one of the few places that did not have this silt problem. You can put the, the picture up if you could, Teresa. Today, over 2,000 years later, this is what it looks like. This harbor is still a major harbor used in Greece today. Um, something else that is important for it, it had a very good soil and it had very good mines. There was good farming in this area which made a great play to sell your produce when the major highway goes right through. The other thing that it was famous for is its mines. Gold, silver, iron, lead, they were all copper, they were, I think, I think copper, maybe I got that one wrong, was actually mined in this area. When the Romans at one time tried to shut down the city, they did it by shutting down the mines. They thought that's where so much money came out of this city and just was put on boats, the gold was put on the road, and they traded for it, which is one of the reasons they became so wealthy. Something else is they had a large population. An ancient writer named Strabo says that the city of Thessalonica was the most populous city in the whole country of Macedonia. Another ancient writer named Lucian, he estimates the number of people in the city as between 65,000 to 100,000 people in this coastal city. Now, this is an ancient city. That is a lot of people. 
this is one of the largest cities in the entire Roman Empire. Next thing to learn about it is its favored political status. The thing that you need to understand is its loyalty to Rome. Macedonians in the north of the country rebelled against Rome. And you can imagine what Rome did. Sent an army and squashed those guys. And so you wonder, how do the Macedonians in the south, the Macedonians in Thessalonica, react to that? Did they get upset? Uh, the Roman general was named Metellus. Here's what they did. They built a monument in his honor. How about that? And on the monument, they called him our savior and benefactor. Here's the monument. Put it up. Here's the key to understand. This city did everything it can to schmooze up to Rome, to keep Rome happy. There is a number of major buildings in this city that have on them inscriptions saying the money for this building was donated by a wealthy Roman. So they get a lot of Roman money flowing in here. So you do not want to do anything to jeopardize that relationship. Um, something else that's fun to know is they supported Mark, Anthony, and Octavian. You're like, oh, why do I care about those guys? There's a little Roman history. Julius Caesar was assassinated. Uh, there was a war between four generals, the two that assassinated him, which were Brutus and, and Cassius, and the two that were for him, which was Octavian and Mark Anthony. And the final battle between these guys actually took place right down the road from Thessalonica between Thessalonica and Philippi. That's a space of about 100 miles. And the city had to choose a side. Like, who are you going to root for and help? Well, I don't know if it was because they were smart or if it's what we call dumb luck, but they chose to root for Mark, Anthony, and Octavian, who happened to be the winners. As a result, Mark, Anthony gave the city the status of being a free city as a reward for their support. That is super important to know. There are not many free cities in the Roman Empire, but this is what it means. Number one, they could govern themselves instead of being governed by Rome. They could mint their own coins. Number three, they were greatly reduced when it came to Roman taxes. And everybody likes to reduce their taxes, right? Well, that'll do it right there. Number four, they were free from Roman military occupation. And so they were very proud of their free city status. They wanted to do anything they could to maintain this status. Keep, you know, snuggling up to Rome, do everything they... And make Rome happy and tell Rome they're wonderful people and we love you and we so appreciate you. As long as they're happy, we do well. In fact, they went to the point of actually erecting temples to worship the Roman emperors. Now, that really buddies up to them, doesn't it? You couldn't just erect one of these if you wanted to. You actually had approval from Rome to be able to do this. And they had a number of these in the city. You're saying, thanks for the history lesson, Pastor, but <laughs> we're actually a church, and we want to talk about the Bible. Oh, this is why it's important. Understand how much this city wants to be like Rome and keep Rome happy, and then picture a guy named Paul coming into town, saying, I want to tell you about a guy named Jesus, King Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. And right next to you is a monument that to the Roman emperors that says they are the saviors for the world. Do you think there's going to be a little conflict? Oh, yes. A ton of conflict is about ready to ensue. A couple other things to know about their background. It's a unique government structure. They have three levels of government. One is the citizen assembly, and in Greek it's called demos, and I wouldn't normally give you a little Greek lesson, but it's from where we get our word democracy, government by the people. So this was a citizen assembly where people gathered to make decisions for the city. Now, not every decision can be made that way. 
So they had another higher level or sub-level of the citizen democracy uh, called the city council, also known as the boule. And so they made more of the quick and practical decisions where the people made the big decisions. But then on the very top level, there is something called the city leaders in our, in our Bibles. Um, the Greek word is the polytarchs. Other cities didn't have polytarchs. These were the men who ruled the city in place of Rome. And their job description was very simple. Make sure Rome is happy. Make sure that relationship is really good and nothing is going on in the city that would get Rome upset that might endanger our free city status and start to raise our taxes. That's pretty much their job description. That will become very important to know once we get to how the gospel comes to this city. It was also a religiously pluralistic environment. In other words, there was a lot of different gods and goddesses worshipped here. Archaeologists have identified 25 different temples. And some of you are going, oh, isn't every ancient city a religiously pluralistic environment? Yes. But this one had a lot of different gods. We always hear that in church, but what are these gods like and how do you worship them? Let me just take a moment to introduce you to some of them. One that was very popular in the city was the god Dionysus, also sometimes called Bacchus. And he's pictured with a drinking cup in his hand. Do you know what he's drinking? Wine, exactly. This is what you call the party god. Let's get drunk and drink god, which is a pretty exciting god for people who are sailors coming into the port. People who are travelers coming through the area on the Via Ignatia, hey, let's get drunk and let's have a party. Now, isn't he still worshiped today? Usually on Super Bowl weekend, except instead of a cup, it's a can of beer. Nothing's changed, has it? Another one that was very popular was Anubis. Anubis was a, one of the gods in Egypt. It was a god of the afterlife. If you've seen Egyptian hieroglyphics, you've seen this guy. I call him Jackalface because that's what he is. He's a, the jackal-headed god. And for the Egyptian sailors who came in there, that's where they went to worship. Another guy was named Cabirus. You know, we don't know much about him, but he was very popular in this city. He's pictured with a mallet in one hand and a wine glass in another hand. I call this guy working for the weekend god because that's what it's like. It's, he was the god of work and the god of partying at the end. Uh, don't know a ton about him, but not much has changed, as you see, from modern society and ancient society. Of course, another popular one was Aphrodite the goddess of love, sometimes called Venus, and for obvious reasons, we're not going to show you a picture of that one. Uh, next, of course, we had emperor worship, which I told you about was very popular. It's all part of their idea to make sure Rome's happy. And lastly, there was a very strong Jewish population in this city. Uh, this strong Jewish population existed in this city all the way down through history until the time of Hitler when Hitler took 60,000 Jews out of the city and killed them all. And since that time, the Jewish population of the city has been non-existent. A couple other things about history. It was a city of crime and prostitution. We're very big here. Archaeologists tell us that in this city, almost all the houses had no windows, which was a rare thing. And the reason they had no windows is for security purposes, because there is so much crime in this city. And of course, as I mentioned, prostitution was very well established, especially with so many sailors coming in this city and so many people who are travelers coming on the Via Ignatia through this city. Very large sexual prostitution. That's the background. Now, let's talk about the gospel. How did the gospel come to this city? It came on one of Paul's missionary journeys. If you know about Paul's missionary journeys, he took a number of them. And I noticed this week who he took with him when he went on them. On the first missionary journey, it was Paul and Barnabas, 
and they took a young guy named John Mark. So Paul took a seasoned man, a seasoned, more of experienced Christian named Barnabas, and he took a young guy named John Mark, which was sort of the guy in training. And then if you know what happened when Paul decided to do a second missionary journey, there was a little disagreement between him and Barnabas about taking John Mark. They ended up leaving John Mark home. Barnabas went his own way. So Paul decided he would take Silas and Timothy on the second missionary journey, which is Silas, another mature Christian, Timothy, another young Christian who's in training. And I thought to myself, man, I think there's a little application right there isn't there? Many times we like to do ministry and we do it alone, don't we? But that's not the way Paul did his ministry. He always did his ministry with a in a team. Somebody else who was a mature Christian to share the weight with him and a young Christian to learn from him. Man, we could take that to heart, couldn't we? Maybe you're a life group leader. You try to carry all that weight by yourself hosting, leading. Maybe we shouldn't carry it by ourselves. Maybe we should share that way with another mature Christian and intentionally bring a younger Christian under us so they can learn from us. And maybe you're teaching a, a Bible study on Wednesday night. Don't teach it alone. Share that weight with another mature Christian. It makes life a lot more fun when you get to do things together. Isn't that true? <laughs> and then get a younger Christian involved to learn from both of you. That was Paul's strategy. Now, what we find is the beginning of this church is on Paul's second missionary journey. It begins in Acts chapter 16. Let's start by reading that. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul and Silas are trying to head a variety of different ways, and God just keeps shutting the door on them. By the way, when God shuts the door on you for something, that's not because he doesn't, that's not because he doesn't love you. That's because he's trying to steer you. Steer you the place he wants you to go. That's what God was doing steering Paul to the place of Troas, where God gave him a vision of a man named from Macedonia saying, come and help us tell the gospel to us. Now, if God hadn't shut those other doors, Paul wouldn't have gone that way. And this is super significant because this is the story of the gospel first coming to Europe. Go ahead and put the map up there. You can see where Troas is, and Macedonia is on the other side. This is the gospel jumping continents. That was God's plan, to bring the gospel to Macedonia. Many of you know this, the first place that Paul lands is Philippi. They share the gospel there. He ends up in jail, ends up in the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Paul then leaves and heads out of town, heads to the next city, which is Thessalonica, which is the one that we're studying. And the story of what happens when he gets there is found in Acts chapter 17. I'm going to read that to you, and then we're going to pick our way through it. Acts chapter 17. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, 
and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Let's work our way through this text. Verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Go ahead and put that map up there. These are two smaller cities that are on that road, the Via Ignatia, the highway. And uh, these are sort of stopover cities when you're traveling between these major cities of Philippi and Thessalonica. The distance between Philippi and Thessalonica is roughly 92 to 100 miles. It's uh, sometimes a five or six day journey. Something that was unique about this city that was different from Philippi is this city had a synagogue, which means it had a larger number of Jews. Philippi did not have a synagogue, which means it had probably less than 10 Jews. Verse 2, And Paul went in, (coughs) as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Why did Paul begin by going to a synagogue? Here's my best guess. Paul, you know, was (laughs) agitated, educated, that's better, educated under uh, the rabbi Gamaliel. He was one of the most prestigious rabbis in that day. Essentially, he had a Harvard education. So when he comes into a community and they realized that a Harvard-educated rabbi just came in, people were eager to hear him speak, especially the Jews. So they gave him an open mic in the synagogues, which he said, this is a great opportunity for me to tell you about Jesus. And that's what he did. For three days of worship, he had the microphone, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He had a Bible study with them. Verse 3 explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, of course, if Paul had been talking about the Messiah as the one who returns at the end of history in victory and triumph, that would have been a much more popular preaching topic. Rather, the Messiah is not just the one who returns at the end of history in victory and triumph, but he's also the one who came in the middle of history to die on the cross in our place for our sins. That was news to the Jews. That was a little harder to swallow, but he probably went to passages like Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, which talk very clearly about these kind of things happening to the Messiah. And he reasoned with them. Now, how long was Paul in Thessalonica? Many Bible scholars would say he was only there three weeks for three Sabbaths. I'm going to tell you rather quickly in this section, I believe that he was probably longer than, there longer than three weeks. I don't know how much longer, but probably longer. Was he in the Sabbath? Was he, was he in the synagogue for three Sabbaths? Yes, I totally agree with that. But here's why I think he was in there longer. We know from this book that the church was made up of primarily Gentiles, not Jews. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The Jews didn't have to turn from idols, folks. It was Gentiles that had to turn from idols. 
And remember, there's a lot of idols in this, in, this, in this city. So it's primarily a Gentile church. But if he was only there three weeks, and in the, in the synagogue three weeks, where did he meet all these Gentiles? Probably was around longer. Secondly, the Philippians sent Paul financial help two or more times. It says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And the Greek says that's two, it literally means or more times. How far away is the city of Philippi? Roughly a hundred miles. So you have some, one person brought money 100 miles one way, dropped it off, went back another 100 miles. Apparently turned around and went back another 100 miles, walking, dropped it off, and went all the way back. That's 400 miles. Do you think he was only there three or less weeks? That's a lot of walking and a lot of delivering. It means he was probably around a little bit longer than three weeks for those two times of help to come from the church of Philippi. Thirdly, he had enough time to develop a business. Um, now, this is a minor problem in 1 Thessalonians. It becomes a major problem by the time we get to 2 Thessalonians. It's called lazy Christians. He's going to address Christians who are sponging off the wealth of wealthy Christians in the church rather than actually getting a job and supporting themselves. And Paul will say, I gave you an example to follow. And what it is, is he picked up and began his tent-making ministry. He made tents. He sold tents. How well do you think that would have taken place in less than three weeks to develop a business? Probably didn't happen. <coughs> so Paul was there at least three, probably more than three weeks. But how did this reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews go? Here's what we find out. Who, it says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So who broke away from the synagogue and joined the church that Paul started? Some Jews. We know the name of one of them. We're going to meet him in a moment. His name is Jason. He was a very wealthy man. He had a house, and it wasn't just any house. It was a really big house, like a big enough house where the entire church could meet in the house. And you think the Jews were upset that wealthy Jason left the synagogue to join Paul in the church? What do you think? Oh, yeah. There are also a bunch of devout Greeks. Now, what does that mean? Those are Greeks who believe in the God of the Bible, they attend the synagogue, but there's one thing they are not going to do to become Jewish. You know what it is? Circumcision. Folks, this is before the days of Novocaine. This is before the days of antibiotics. This is before the days of knockout gas. So the guys are going, we're drawing a line someplace, okay? Like, we love God, but we don't, like, no, we're not doing that. And then it says there's some prominent women. We don't know who these women are, but they're very powerful women in this city. A city of 65,000 to 100,000 people. There's some really important shakers and movers that have left the synagogue to join this church. Something else to point out for you is the divine passive. You say, divine passive, who's, who's that? Notice the wording. It doesn't say, and Paul persuaded some of the Jews. It says some of the Jews were persuaded. This is important in the book of Acts. The, ling the language of the book of Acts is very careful. It never says that Paul or other human beings convinced people to believe in Jesus. All it says is that they reasoned with them from the scriptures and they encouraged them, but guess who changed their hearts and minds? It was God. God gets all the credit for changing hearts and minds. All Paul could do was present 
the biblical evidence and keep his finger in the text. And he could encourage people to turn, but he couldn't make people turn. This is so important for you and me because nothing has ever changed, folks. You cannot make anyone become a Christian. It is not your job to convince somebody to trust in Jesus. All we can do is present the gospel. We can keep our finger in the text and show the word of God. And we can encourage people to trust in Jesus. But we can't change anyone's heart, can we? That's God's job, not our job. So God gets all the credit. And I say that because I want to take off your shoulders the weight of responsibility, feeling like we have to change someone's heart. We can't. All we can do is, just like Paul, reason from the Scriptures. Now, in a moment, Paul is going to be kicked out of the synagogue. Where did Paul go when he was kicked out of the synagogue? Let me cover this quickly. I don't know, but I think he engaged in street corner evangelism. And why do I say that? Because he did that in Corinth and he did that in Ephesus. Acts 17, 17. And he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He went down to a coffee shop and built relationships with people. Also, workplace evangelism. It says 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. The Greek could be translated this way. I put it in your notes. While working night and day, we preached the gospel of God. Remember he started his business, his tent-making business? Let me put up that picture. This is the marketplace. It's excavated. It's in Thessalonica today. You can see it. Paul was in this shopping area, and he's making tents, and people are coming into his business, and they're looking at his tents, and they're trying to order some tents, and he's making tents, and he's talking to them, but what is he also talking about? Jesus Christ, while he worked. Folks, that's a pattern for us to follow. One of the best things we can do is it's while we work, we bring Jesus up in conversations. It's while we work, we talk about what happened in church that weekend. Uh, that may not be totally politically correct, but that's what Paul did, and I think it's a pattern for us to follow. Share the gospel while we work. Well, this leads us to opposition to Paul's ministry. It begins in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous. I think that's an understatement. When you lose a bunch of rich Jews, when all of a sudden prominent women have left your, your synagogue, and all these people are going over to Paul, and they're upset. And look what they do. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Oh boy, here's where it gets fun. It says, they worked up men... Uh, they talks about these wicked men of the rabble. Uh, rabble is probably not the best translation. It's the Greek word agora, which means marketplace. Men who were in the market, not doing anything productive with their lives. And it calls them wicked men. The Greek word here is very colorful. It's a strong pejorative. It means lowlifes. It means loafers. Trouble, this is the definition. Troublemakers who add no value to society but love to create trouble in society. You ever mean those kind of people? Plutarch writes about them. This is a quote. He says, there are these kind of men who hang around the markets. They force societal issues by creating civil unrest. Have you ever heard of people that like to force societal issues by creating civil unrest? That they're really lowlifes, that they need to get a job, but they don't have a job? And you wonder, so who pays them? In this case the Jews, who paid them to create a riot and a mob in the city. 
Now, folks, doesn't it sound like history repeats itself? Have you ever seen that? It's the exact same thing going on right here. It says, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. <laughs> it's the Greek word demos. Bring them out and bring them to the citizen assembly when the whole crowd and city is, is rioting and have the people reject Paul and Silas and kick them out of the country, out of the city. That's what's going on. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They can't find Paul and Silas, so they go to Jason, the wealthy Jewish guy's house, where the church is meeting in his home. They know that since the city knows Jason, they can't bring him to the demos, the citizen authorities, the citizen decision-making, because everyone likes Jason. You're not going to be able to get him with a lynch mob. So they bring him to the city leaders. This is the Greek word polytarchs. Remember the guys who are over top of the whole city whose job it is to keep Rome happy. And look at the charges they level against them. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king named Jesus. What were the charges they leveled against him? Number one, disturbing the peace, saying that these men, Paul and Silas, are the ones who have put the city into an entire uproar. Is that true? Who put the city into an uproar? They did. They're accusing Paul and Silas of what they are actually guilty of. Does history ever repeat itself? Oh, yes. The other thing they accuse them of is proposing a king who was not Caesar. Essentially, they accuse them of treason because Paul and Silas aren't there to defend themselves. They're talking about Jesus, who is the savior of the world, but they're assuming this Jesus is a political king who is going to be the opposite of Caesar. Incidentally, at this moment, Caesar was 74 years old. He was old. People were wondering what the succession plan was for this guy. And so this is considered treasonous. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. The Greek word literally means they were in a complete and total panic. Because that they think what's happening is Paul and Silas are creating a panic in the city, being treasonous against Rome in this city, and they're in danger of using their free city status. They're in danger of all of a sudden losing all their tax breaks. We've got to get rid of these guys and get rid of them in a hurry. So Paul and Silas were forced to leave. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And this, I'm just going to jump to the end here. Paul, essentially, uh, there's another mob in Berea. Paul goes south, eventually ends up in Corinth. He stays there for a year and a half. When he left Berea, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica because apparently Timothy was not one of the ones on the list of people that got kicked out of the city. He went there to encourage the church. In Corinth, Timothy returns to Paul, and then this is what he says in 1 Thessalonians. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the news of your faith and the love and reported that you always remember us kindly as we long to see us, as we long to see you. When Timothy arrives and Paul hears how well this church is doing, that is when he sits down in AD 51 and writes the letter to the Thessalonians. Look at the outline of the book. Now that we know the background of the city and the 
the beginning of the gospel in the city, this outline will make much better sense. It, the book breaks into two parts. The first part is Paul defending himself. Paul defends how he acted while in Thessalonica. Hey, I didn't try to kick up a mob and cause all kinds of problems. That's what people are telling you, but I didn't do it. And then he defends why he cannot return to Thessalonica. Well, because they kicked me out. And then Paul encourages faithfulness in persecution, because you know that church is going through a real hard time. And then Paul answers the questions that Timothy had brought to him. These are the questions. What is proper Christian sexual conduct? That's pretty important in a pretty depraved place, like the city of Thessalonica. And what happens to Christians when they die? What will happen when Jesus returns? And how should Christians be different in this world? Now you wonder, what's the application out of all this information? It's sort of simple. Thessalonica was a really dark, depraved place. A crime-ridden, sex-ridden city. The church there was under extreme persecution by the Jews who were doing everything they could to crush them. But what did we learn about this church at the very beginning? It was a good church. It was a solid church. It was a church that brought great joy to Paul, unlike many others. Here's the point. In some of the toughest circumstances we face in life, those are the moments when God grows us best in Christ. Isn't that true? We grow much better in times of adversity than we do in times of comfort and prosperity. I don't know what your life is like when you came in here this morning. I don't know what kind of difficulties and frustrations you're facing at work. I don't know what kind of difficulties and frustrations you're facing in your marriage that are causing you to get down on your knees and call out to Jesus. I don't know what kind of problems you have in your world that is bringing you to your knees, but I do know that it's in those difficult times that God grows us best, and it's in those difficult times that he creates a sweet church that is pleasing to him. In times of adversity, not times of prosperity. So if you're in one of those times right now, do not lose hope. Think about the church of Thessalonica, the church that brought a great smile to Paul's face. Let us pray. Father, I ask for us uh, as Christians, many times when we go through difficult times at work or in our job or, or in our marriage or in school and we find ourselves filled with fear, we find ourselves calling out to you, we don't like those times. But yet when we turn around and look at what you do for us in our walk with Christ, those are some of the best times. Those are when we follow you most closely and we love you most deeply. So we thank you for those times and we thank you for the good work you do in our hearts and our lives in and through those times as well. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.